0: Welcome to this preview of Worlds Together, Worlds Apart, the Alumni Association's Alumni Studies course for Fall 2002. Today, course leader Robert Tigner, Rosengarten Professor of Modern and Contemporary History and Chair of the Department of History, is joined by two of his colleagues from the Department of History, Professor Jeremy Edelman and Professor Stephen Kotkin, to give us a taste of some of the issues with which course participants will engage during this exploration of the history of the modern world from the Mongol Empire to the present.
1: On behalf of the Alumni Association, I would like to thank our guests today, Robert Tigner, Jeremy Edelman, and Stephen Kotkin, for taking time out of their busy schedules to give us a snapshot of the Fall 2002 Alumni Studies program entitled Worlds Together, Worlds Apart, The History of the Modern World for the Mongol Empire to the Present. I'd also like to thank the entire staff of Media Services. Without them, we wouldn't be able to bring these programs to you. Professor Tigner, I know you'd like to focus on European imperialism in Africa on the Heart of Darkness text. But when we think of the modern world, most of us associate that with the Discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. Can you tell us why you have chosen to start with the Mongol Empire in
2: 1300? We did it for a number of reasons. Uh, Obviously, Columbus is important. Columbus is uh, the person who really brings together the two continents or or the two uh, hemispheres. Uh, the East and the West, Uh, but we we wanted to uh, uh, alert readers to the fact that um, there were movements towards world unity long before Columbus made his exploration across the Atlantic Ocean, and we especially wanted to highlight the importance of the Mongols as a a force for worldwide unity, uh, uniting large parts of the Asian and European continents, and also setting the background in some respects for Columbus and, and the other explorers.
1: Well, we'll turn back now to the text, Heart of Darkness, which I know you wanted to speak about. How does this work help us understand the European countries?
2: Well, I'd like to say a few prefatory things about the Heart of Darkness before I, we go into the specifics of it. You know, this is one of the most famous novels that's ever been written. It, uh, it's read, I think, by every undergraduate, probably lots of high school students. It's hard, I think, to conceive of anybody not having read Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. Most people don't see it as a historical text. They see it as a piece of great literature, which, of course, it is. And they uh, And they're not aware of its very important historical setting. So it is, I think, essential before saying anything specifically about the book, just to talk a little bit about uh, when it was written, by whom it was written, what sort of information uh, the writer had uh, about the uh, the world that he was portraying. The book was published in 1899. It was on the basis of Conrad's own voyages uh, in the Congo River Basin and his knowledge of King Leopold's Uh, administration of the Congo people. King Leopold had uh, occupied the Congo area for himself, having failed to uh, obtain uh, support from the Belgian populace. So he'd taken over this huge swath of territory in the central part of Africa, and he had decided to exploit it as uh, ruthlessly and in a way as efficiently as he possibly could so as to be able to take all kinds of resources out of Africa it was in the midst of this very ruthless exploitation of the Congo that Conrad made his voyage uh, uh, into Central Africa Uh, and he was appalled and shocked at what he saw in terms of the uh, gross uh, what we would call today the gross violations of human rights Uh, and he decided to uh, put that information, write that information up in a very short novel which has captivated the interests of many, many people most of whom set aside the actual African background and perspective of the novel and they read the novel as a story about uh, human beings and about uh, the interior of of the human mind and uh, and the difficulties that come when one spends time in a, in a hardship part of the world. But in fact, the, the African setting is extremely important. Uh, it was meant as an expose at the time of the uh, Belgian administration, or I should say King Leopold's administration of the Congo and, and the brutalities and the harshness of his administration. And it had a huge impact uh, on European public opinion at that time. So that is a little bit of the background that I think people need to have when they sit down uh, to read this book. They need to understand that, that it conveys uh, impressions of what uh, the world looked like from Africa at that time.
1: What knowledge did Conrad have of Europe and Africa, and how was the story based?
2: Conrad had spent a lot of time. He was a devout sailor, he loved sailing. He traveled all over the world. Uh, he traveled in Asia, he uh, sailed in the Indian Ocean, he sailed into the Atlantic Ocean, and he sailed up the Congo River. And so his, his knowledge of, uh, of the Congo and of colonial administration in general was based on uh, a good deal of personal experience.
1: What sort of view does Conrad project of the African continent, its people, and its imperializers?
2: Uh, Very good question. (laughs) I would say a very negative view all the way around. Uh, A lot of people read Heart of Darkness uh, and they certainly come away with a vision uh, of of a very lustful, however somewhat inefficient, European imperial system. It's certainly, the heart of darkness is a condemnation of European imperialism uh, and of the, uh, of the uh, brutality of the European imperializers. It is at the same time also uh, a really a rather shocking portrait of how inefficient the European administrators really were. Because when, uh, when Marlow is at the coast in the Congo, waiting to go up the Congo River in order to meet with Kurtz. He has to wait for mm, eight weeks, something like that, in order to get the proper parts, the rivets, for the ship. Uh, and he's, he's cooling his heels there, nothing to do, nothing much is going on. It, it, it's a really an impression of uh, a good deal of Inefficiency, Whereas, of course, the Europeans were arguing that they were in Africa because they were highly efficient, very uh, well-developed uh, administrative systems. In fact, the reality was quite the opposite. As regards the portrait of Africa, it seems to me, and Africans, it seems to me, is also quite uh, uncomplimentary and very negative. And this is a reason I think the novel has to be read with a considerable amount of care. Uh, Africans appear as very primitive peoples. The African continent is seen as a very primitive place. Conrad talks about going back in time when he goes uh, to the Congo. Uh, Very few Africans are introduced into the story. Hardly ever do Africans speak. And that's a very important feature for Conrad because speech, articulate speech, sophisticated speech is really for him a mark of sophistication and civilization and there are only two or three occasions in which the Africans actually do speak and then they utter the most primitive uh, kinds of discourses and also his companions on the voyage up the Congo River are cannibalistic people as if he's making a statement that cannibalism is widespread in Africa when in fact it was not so a caution to the reader that while Conrad is a critic of imperialism, he is also somebody who has uh, completely absorbed the European attitude towards Africans and the African continent.
1: The well-known Nigerian novelist Chinua Akibi has written that no undergraduate should be allowed to read this book since it contains such a prejudicial view of Africa. Why does he hold this view, and do you subscribe to it?
2: Well, he holds the view for the very reasons that I just indicated, that that the book conveys this quite negative, stereotypical image of the continent and of African peoples. Uh, I'm a little bit sympathetic to Achebe in his notion that undergrads ought not to read this. Uh, and certainly I'm very sympathetic to this notion that undergrads uh, should not read it if they're not given a proper... Uh, introduction To the author And to the time period But uh, um, It's a great work of, of art It's a great work of literature It has influenced um, So much contemporary writing uh, That one has to read it But one has to read it Under the proper guidance And one has to understand That while um, Conrad is Is a ferocious critic Of imperialism He has also embraced all the stereotypes of race and geography that have befuddled the African continent.
3: Our chapter 10 is what we call, is about what we call modernities. And the common view of this question, modernity today, is a kind of American style system. That is to say, free market capitalism and democracy. This is clearly a post World War II definition of modernity. And prior to World War II, there were competing definitions, much more powerful uh, than we understand them to be, perhaps. And these competing definitions had to do with who would be able to incorporate the masses best into a political system? Parliamentary systems in the old days, that is to say in the late 19th century, were not democratic. They had a restricted franchise. They had a very narrow political spectrum in which people could participate. And so as they began to open up, as they began to democratize or get more democratic, as more than just property holders got the right to vote, as even in some countries women got the right to vote, The parliamentary systems, the liberal systems, opened up where they democratized. However, there was a challenge to them. Radical authoritarian systems also felt that they could bring the masses into the political system. In fact, they could do it better than the parliamentary regimes. And so this battle between parliamentary regimes as they were democratizing, authoritarian regimes as they were, in their radical sense, bringing the masses into the political system, was in some ways the beginning of the 20th century or the beginning of what each side called their version of modernity. There was yet another version, which was the anti-colonial version. And this is interesting because the colonials often felt that the values of the liberal parliamentary regimes were good, but that in practice they were living under despotic regimes created by the liberal parliamentary countries like Britain or France. And so what was the answer for the colonial world? to go the radical route either of the left or the right and some authoritarian system or to reinvent the liberal or the parliamentary system in a way that was better for the natives or the colonial peoples. So this is what our Chapter 10 is about.
1: Well, what's the latest thinking on the causes and consequences of World War I?
3: On some ways, World War I is the uh, either the accelerator or the beginner of this process that we've been describing in our Chapter 10. Uh, There are many causes of World War I. Uh, First, of course, people think of the Ottoman Empire decline. The Ottoman Empire uh, was a very big and important country in the turn of the 19th century, but it was losing territory in southeastern Europe, what we call the Balkans. This opened up a competition between Austria-Hungary, which was another very big empire, and Russia for influence in the Balkans, and this created great tension. So the Ottoman decline was clearly one factor. Another factor in uh, bringing about World War I was simply the ignorance of what an industrialized war would be like. In other words, the last previous war in Europe had been the Franco-Prussian War in 1870-71, and this was before the huge second industrialization of steel and chemicals uh, that produced the kind of weaponry and possibility of destruction and death that we saw in World War I. But people hadn't seen it yet. There had been a huge land battle in the Russo-Japanese War in Mukden in Manchuria in 1905, and all the, Europeans military, all the European military leaders sent representatives to see this battle, but they still didn't get it. They didn't realize just what type of destruction they were now capable of. So a kind of naivete or even willingness to risk war for various different domestic political reasons not understanding the possible destruction. So these two causes are important, but a bigger cause was the Anglo-German rivalry. Uh, Britain was the great power in the world in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, Germany, however, rose up very quickly on the continent. Beginning in 1870, those Franco-Prussian wars were part of the formation of Germany, uh, the German uh, Empire under Bismarck. And this new Germany uh, rose up on the continent, and Britain did not uh, feel that it was in its interests or serving its security to have such a powerful Germany. So how was Britain going to deal with the rise of Germany? And this Anglo-German rivalry, because the Germans had their own ambitions, this Anglo-German rivalry made everyone choose sides. The French chose the British side. Austria-Hungary chose the German side. The big question was, which side was Russia going to go on? Russia had rivalry with Austria-Hungary and the Balkans, owing to the Ottoman decline. But Russia also had rivalry with the British all throughout uh, Central Asia in what was called the Great Game or battle for influence in uh, colonial territories in Central Asia. Russia, as we know, chose the side of the the uh, British and the French, and so you had a two-front war, which meant that the Germans and the Austrian Hungarians could barely win. But this German-British antagonism, these two great superpowers, who was going to be king of the hill? This, in many ways, was the main cause of the war. We've long had more or less consensus on the various different factors or causes uh, of the war. Um, In fact, in some ways, European history in the United States was founded in answer or in exploration of this question, where did World War I come from? The bigger question, however, are the consequences of the war. In some ways, the focus on the causes took people away from dealing with the consequences. And so now if we understand the causes more or less, although there's still some disagreement of the degree of responsibility among the various powers, it's the consequences that are fascinating. Just to take them off very briefly, the colonial regimes expanded. That is to say, the British and the French Empire grew as a result of World War One. They reached their greatest height right after World War I, but they were also destabilized because of the fact that the Colonials were compelled to fight on the side of the British and the French, but they weren't citizens. They didn't have the rights that those who were fighting from the countries themselves, Britain and France, had. And so this sort of growth of empire and destabilization of empire, this kind of simultaneous contradictory dynamic is one consequence of the war. Another consequence of the war is the Russian Revolution. The entire Russian Revolution, all the things that happened in the revolution took place during World War I. Another uh, very big and important uh, consequence of the war is, of course, the destruction of various different empires. The Russian Empire was destroyed in World War I, although it came back as the Soviet Union. The Ottomans were destroyed and the Austro-Hungarians were destroyed, as a result of which we had a proliferation of states. These states ended up not on the side of a kind of parliamentary democratic modernity, but more inclined towards an authoritarian modernity. But even bigger than, despite how big these things are, the decline of empires, the Russian revolution, the expansion of overseas empires and their destabilization in the case of the British and the French, maybe the biggest consequence of World War I was the politicization of the masses. The political systems, as I said, had not been very open. However, when you have entire nations fighting total wars or even entire empires fighting total wars against each other, then you have people drawn from villages, drawn from small towns into this big political organization known as the army, and millions and millions and millions fought on each side. Also, on the home front, women were drawn into fighting the war by working in factories or by doing other work, uh, medical work, volunteer work. Um, uh, gathering of war materials, et cetera. All sorts of mobilization tasks presented a big challenge. What were you going to do with the masses now that you've mobilized them? How were you going to incorporate them into the political systems? This was perhaps the main consequence of World War I because it cut across all these other consequences.
1: Was this uh, the great explosion that set the stage for the entire 20th century? In some
3: ways, that's what people think because of the fact that... Um, each side was wondering how to incorporate the masses and devising very different things. I unfortunately left out the uh, rise of fascism in Italy as one of the consequences of World War I when I was ticking off the... So you have the Italian fascist case, you have the movements for uh, nationalism in the colonial realms, you have uh, Soviet communism, and you have a democratization of the liberal parliamentary regimes. So this in some ways is uh, the first half of the 20th century and how this is gonna play out. We, of course, know how it plays out because we've lived through uh, the end of the 20th century. Uh, But nonetheless, at the time, it was a more open question.
1: Well, what made it a world
3: war? What made it a world war was the fact that not only were the major powers involved, that is to say all the most powerful countries in in Europe, but the colonial regimes were involved as well. In fact, 40% of the British uh, war effort in material and personnel came from colonies. From British colonies. Many people think that it was the United States entry into the war in 1917 that tipped the balance on the side of the British and the French. Uh, that's uh, certainly a, a major factor, but Britain could not have won the war without the participation of its huge uh, colonial empire. And so uh, the fact that Europe had colonies all over the world made it a, a world war, not just the European war.
1: Why did Russia choose to go with uh, the Britons?
3: You know, the the conservatives in Russia felt that they should go with Germany uh, because they were more alike in uh, political systems. Uh, However, there were all sorts of other uh, factors which had to do with competition over uh, territory between the two countries, had to do with the ties of the royal family, uh, which was related uh, much more closely to the British monarchy. Uh, that is to say, the Romanov dynasty was related much more closely to the British monarchy. In any case, the conservatives in Russia predicted that if we fight against Germany and on the side of the British rather than the other way around, that we're going to destroy ourselves and have a revolution and lose the empire. And in fact, uh, the conservatives were right about this. But the Russians lost the war. That is to say, we forget that the Germans won the war on the Eastern Front. Russia was knocked out of the war. There was a peace in March 1918. The Eastern Front fell to the Germans. The Germans didn't win on the Western Front. Uh, they made a, 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 a very close, uh, about 35, 37 miles to, to Paris. They were a very close offensive, trying to beat the American entry into the war, which they saw coming, and nail the Western Front. Uh, but they couldn't do it, and uh, they lost on the Western Front, and the Western Front was decisive for the entire war.
1: Did the contribution of vast colonies put the British and French over the top?
3: Yes, I think clearly the, the, the colonial... I mean, the American contribution has been emphasized in most of the textbooks, and we follow the importance of this. It, can't, it, it certainly can't be underestimated. Uh, but one of the things that our uh, chapter does is to uh, show the colonial contribution, which has, had re- which has let's say, received less emphasis uh, in uh, most of the textbook accounts. But just to to reiterate, it's the consequences really that are crucial coming out of this war, and it's this competition for how to incorporate the masses into some political system. And the authoritarians are very good at this. They have uh, the leadership principle or the cult of the leader. Uh, They have all sorts of mass organizations. Uh, They have very good rallies in the streets or in football stadiums, that is to say soccer stadiums. These authoritarian regimes, and now we're talking about the Italian fascists, uh, the German Nazis, the Soviet uh, communists, those are the three big ones, but you also have an authoritarian regime in Poland, and in Romania, and in Spain, etc. In other words, authoritarianism dominates the continent in some ways, and they're very successful at this modern game of incorporating the masses, at least in the, in, in the period between World War I and World War II.
1: I'm sure we could go for hours on this next question, but what is modernity?
3: You see, the, the thing that our uh, chapter tries to do is to show that it was a contested question. In other words, different groups, different countries felt that they had the answer, and there was no single dominant power which could impose its answer on all the others, although, of course, the Nazis would try in World War II to, to impose their answer on the others. And there was a multiplayer game. So the British and the French, for example, had their version of modernity, which was um, different from the American one in some ways, although they were both uh, parliamentary-type, or that is to say, liberal-type systems. They didn't agree. And in fact, the British and the French didn't uh, like the American system very much. They felt that it was sort of a little bit barbaric and vulgar. The authoritarians also disagreed among themselves, even though they resembled each other to a certain extent. Uh, the Italians and the Germans battled for supremacy on the far right, radical dictatorship front. And the Soviets felt that their left wing dictatorship was a better form of dictatorship than either the uh, Italian fascist or the German one. So even though it looks like the world divides into these two different liberal authoritarian style regimes, in fact, those themselves were subdivided, and there was this multi level game. And the uh, colonial leaders, in some cases very successful. There was, uh, for example, an extremely successful uh, movement in India to throw off uh, British rule, colonial rule under Gandhi. And they felt that they didn't need to uh, adhere to any particular uh, definition of modernity either, and that they could develop their own. So this competition for modernity, for defining it, for bringing it into being in political institutions, uh, is characteristic of this interwar period between World War One and World War II. And uh, the openness of the competition is what we try to recapture, because, of course, after World War II, the Cold War is a much more binary world in which two systems compete, and there's a lineup of allies or satellites on either side of the two systems rather than a multi-way competition.
0: Well, I think uh, a lot of people have tended to approach the age of discovery, uh, particularly from a European perspective, uh, in which people set out from the fringes of the Eurasian continent in search of something new, uh, looking to create uh, new frontiers for uh, European expansion. And What we try to do is uh, not to deny that the Europeans do something quite exceptional, but to put it in a larger world context. Uh, we find that in the uh, 15th century in particular that many people are on the move uh, around the world. Uh, Chinese uh, uh, are exploring the Indian Ocean and the Chinese uh, Seas. Uh, Indians, uh, Arab merchants are, are plying their wares uh, up and down the coasts of Africa. And, of course, Africans as well are uh, sailing up and down the littorals uh, of the continent. And so it's not just the Europeans that are exploring. And that's one important uh, feature of, of the age. Uh, the other is, of course, also that the Europeans are under enormous pressure uh, from the expansion of other domains in the Eurasian continent in particular uh the spread of islam uh and in some respects uh this is perhaps one of the oldest uh, historical legacies of the beginnings of the modern world that we explore uh which is this rivalry uh across the eurasian uh continent uh but we locate then the expansion of europe as a response to the expansion of other domains um In the region, and not as something that is produced internally uh, within Europe by some grand vision on the part of Europeans of what the world might look like uh, under their dominion.
1: Well, what motivated the Europeans to explore?
0: Uh, Fear, uh, money, um, and uh, internal rivalries among Europeans themselves. Um, Fear. Uh, it's very important to locate European expansion uh, in its uh, multi-front uh, context. If you just looked at European expansion from the point of view of its, its most Western fringe, so the Portuguese, the Spanish, then the French and the English, uh, exploring the Atlantic world, you'd miss where the real action is going on through most of the century, which is actually the other end, of Europe in its contact zone with Islam, Uh, and in particular, the conflict uh, that leads to the Ottoman incursion into the Balkan world, that strikes fear into the heart of uh, many Europeans. They feel hemmed in. There is increasing control of the trade routes by Muslim traders in the eastern end of the Mediterranean, Uh, and there is a spread, of course, of Islam into uh, the heart of Europe itself. So there's a certain amount of fear, a certain amount of pressure, what used to be uh, a more open European uh, domain around the Mediterranean feels increasingly compressed. And, of course, that brings us to the second uh, issue, which is it's never very far away from the big causal forces in history, which is money. Uh, That there is a long-term recovery after the devastation of uh, the Black Death, uh, agricultural expansion, trading expansion, and there is therefore an increasing sense that the world has uh, is the home of of uh, manifold bounty uh, that can be uh, explored and exploited by uh, merchants, uh, in particular, and in particular, merchants around uh, the Mediterranean. So, uh, Christopher Columbus himself has uh, lots of experience long before he finds employ, uh, with the Spanish, uh, king and queen, uh, working with and for, uh, Italian, uh, merchants and, uh, and also, uh, Portuguese merchants. Uh, exploring in particular long before the idea of crossing the Atlantic emerges, trade along uh, the uh, north and uh, increasingly down uh, the western coasts of Africa so fear uh, money and third and vital factor is increasing rivalry among the very early emerging European powers um, uh, themselves one important feature of Europe that is uh, distinguishes it from other large powerful regions of the Eurasian continent is its internal uh, divisions. These will eventually become uh, the source of uh, the world's most brutal wars will occur in Europe itself over the internal fissures. Uh, But in the uh, 15th century, uh, increasingly conflicts over the papacy, conflicts in France. Iberia. You have the very beginnings of the origins of these dynasties, each one rushing to uh, lather itself in riches that it acquires from the rest of the world. And none more so than the dynasty formed uh, in uh, the uh, 1460s uh, in Spain, uh, between what will become called by the Pope himself the Catholic monarchs. And what does Columbus promise to do? When he comes to them and says... Uh, uh, why don't you finance a little expedition, I've got this idea Uh, because what I will do, and I will find a direct route to Asia now that we're being hemmed in by Muslim traders and competition all around what am I going to do? I will find the direct routes to Asia and I will bring you the wealth that will enable you to finance the last campaign to liberate Jerusalem. Columbus is often thought of as somebody who invents the modern world, that he has a vision of a much grander uh, universe out there for human expansion. In fact, he's very, very much a pre-modern man, and his orientation is towards the east, not towards the west, culturally and politically speaking.
1: What did the Europeans think of the native peoples that they encountered?
0: Uh, Well, uh, it 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 goes through various uh, uh, stages. Of course, the first Europeans to meet uh, the Native Americans when they arrive in uh, the New World is, in fact, to deny that they're new at all, right? To his dying day, Christopher Columbus always rejects the proposition that he discovered anything new. He believed that he had found the route to uh, uh, as he's traveling around the Caribbean, he keeps going up to natives and saying, You know, where is Sipangu? Where is Japan? Now, of course, they don't speak Spanish, and uh, his Spanish is actually not very good either. Um, and uh, But he, to his dying day, believed that he actually found the road uh, uh, to uh, Sipangu, to the Orient. Uh, so, in fact, many Europeans denied that they'd found anything uh, new at all. Uh, but many of the people who uh, joined and then quickly followed in Columbus's step realized that there was something there. Um, and uh, there you begin to see the emergence of some very conflicting images of uh, Native peoples. For some, of course, the Native peoples, decorated in gold, precious metals, uh, 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 diamonds, emeralds. Uh, wow, here is uh, the booty. Uh, that is going to finance uh, the grandeur, not just of the dynasts who finance these expeditions, but you know of our own pockets. And so, um, the the natives as potential sources of enormous wealth uh, is there from the very beginning. At the same time, in order to justify the expeditions, of course, along go with uh, these. Uh, uh sort of forms of, of of bounty hunters uh and and uh primitive forms of, of exploitations of native people go uh religious figures as well. And the priests who go on the voyages see something very different. Here are pristine folk uh who uh while uh they are not yet Christians uh, have the potential to be Christians and so very early on uh, the uh, crusading ambitions uh, of the explorers uh, and uh, the exploiting ambitions uh, go uh, hand in hand. And in fact, they erupt very often in uh, very significant conflicts among these groups. Uh, later on, uh, as we proceed through the centuries, the image of the native peoples themselves uh, will change as the natives begin to respond to European expansionism. Then we begin to acquire the image of native peoples as, uh, as uh, rebellious, as uh, savage. But early on, uh, this is not quite the perception uh, that they have. Uh, and it takes Indian resistance to, ex- to this uh, expansion to generate this image of uh, Indian savagery um, and uh, bloodthirstiness.
1: Then conversely, what did the native people think of the Europeans?
0: It's hard to say, very hard to say. Uh, This is one of the great conundrums of history. How do you study peoples, uh, and and we try to explore this, uh, how do you study peoples who do not keep written records? Uh, uh, for themselves or for whom the documentation of the time was destroyed and for whom the documentation that is subsequently produced is manifestly written in the language, the code, and the cultural norms uh, of uh, the empires. It's very hard to say. Um, There are nonetheless some early signs uh, that, uh, that the Indians don't necessarily uh, greet the European expansionists necessarily as expansionists at all. Uh, it is very often said that some Indian groups in the Caribbean uh, considered uh, Christopher Columbus to be a returning deity uh, that Uh, Fiction quickly runs its course once the people around Columbus in particular start to recruit uh, the Indians to work in mines. This is not exactly a godly thing to be doing. Um, And uh, they begin to resist, in fact, uh, start wiping out many of the colonists that uh, Columbus sends behind because they begin to realize these people are not uh, in this for uh, for our good. Uh, But uh, the Indian response is a complicated and ambivalent so there's resistance, uh, there is welcoming and in some cases, and it's very important to underscore this that in the great conquest that will occur on the mainland of the Americas, uh, particularly in Mesoamerica and in the Andes, of course, what the Europeans encounter are very large empires themselves, including the capital of the largest, the Mexica uh, Empire, Tenochtitlan, which will be the uh, equivalent of the richest country, the the largest uh, city at the time in Europe, which is Naples, 200,000 people. When Cortes himself marches in, he has never seen such a splendid, such a grand city. Uh, and to some natives, therefore, uh, the Europeans are themselves barbarians. But these barbarians, for other native peoples, are potential allies, for these are empires that they've encountered, and so rivals to the Mexica Empire, rivals to the Inca Empire, will embrace Europeans as potential allies in their war against uh, local native empires as well. So it's a very complex mixture that uh, has been unfolding over the course of the 15th century, and the Europeans arrive at a very uh, explosive moment in uh, the history of the New World before the Europeans are ever there.
1: What sorts of institutions were developed in the wake of European conquest and what inspired these institutions?
0: Well, it grew out of the perceptions, um, uh, the institutions. Uh, Again, it depended very much on the different European uh, powers uh, that were uh, involved. In the case uh, in particular of the Spanish, who were really the largest empire uh, uh, in the New World, the institutions reflected all the internal ambivalences that the Spanish brought with them, from the missions all the way to forced labor systems in the mines of the Andes and in and, uh, Mexico. Uh, so there were institutions of conversion, institutions of conquest, and increasingly, in a particular for, the, for uh, the French and especially the British arrivals in the New World, institutions of colonization, our three Cs. Uh, And uh, the colonization uh, institutions that formally begin, in fact, to create European societies in the New World itself. It was not enough just to conquer uh, American peoples and to bring them into the imperial systems, but actually to make real colonies. Uh, out of uh, these uh, conquered peoples by settling Europeans there. Uh, The Spanish were much less successful, the Portuguese uh, somewhat, particularly as they expanded plantation belts uh, up and down the coasts of uh, the largest of all of the colonies, which was Brazil. Uh, But in particular, the French and the British began to ship large numbers of settlers to become colonists in these regions and to create political infrastructures for those uh, settlers. And so you actually see enormous amount of variation across the European patterns of institutions. At the same time, Europeans were very good at adapting to the existing indigenous institutions. The Spanish in particular used much of the fabric of the Inca and Aztec empire for themselves and they simply put themselves at the top of what was essentially an institutional pyramid built by uh, the indigenous people themselves.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Edelman. My pleasure. And we hope this has whetted your appetite for our Fall 2002 program. We at least wanted to give you a good overview, and we hope you'll be able to join us. Thank you very much.